The moral law is not some code that exists outside of God, some code that the universe lives by. The moral law is a description of God's character. Well, I'll invite you to open your copy of God's Word, if you like, this morning to Mark chapter 7. If you don't want to open to Mark chapter 7 this morning, I guess that's okay, because our entire text is found in the title of the message this morning, because you will probably hear the most unique message this morning that you perhaps have ever heard, at least in one sense, because this, for me at least, will be the first time I have ever taken an entire text from a parenthetical phrase. But this morning we will return back to Mark chapter 7 and we're going to refocus our thoughts this morning on this one little phrase found in verse 19. And our text in the phrase that we will look at is, Thus he declared all foods clean. So we are a church that we are founded upon a number of solid biblical doctrines. And one of those doctrines is the doctrine that we believe fully and firmly. We are fully convinced that the only appropriate way for God's people to really open the word together and study the word together is something we call expository preaching. Expository preaching, as most people here have heard me say on more than one occasion, is simply if you want to boil it down into one little phrase or one uh, one nutshell, you might call expository preaching preaching that takes the main point of the passage and makes it the main point of the sermon. That might seem like something that's almost just a given, but you would probably be surprised to find out how often God's Word is taught and preached in which the main point of the message is not the actual main point of the text. So in a very simplistic way, we think of preaching in that way, that the true right preaching of God's Word takes the main point of the passage and makes that the main point of the message. So that's what we're exactly not doing this morning, actually, because we're taking this parenthetical phrase as our text. And by definition, a parenthetical phrase is not the main point of the writing. That's what a parenthetical phrase means. If something is in parentheses, it cannot be the main point. If it is the main point, then take it out of the parentheses because the parentheses mean that this is a side point. This is a tangential thought that goes along closely related with the main point, but it's not the main point. Our New Testament contains many such parenthetical phrases. We recognize, of course, that parentheses are a modern introduction, just like all of grammar and syn- or not grammar, but syntax and punctuation marks. All of these are modern, relatively modern inventions. And so when the biblical writers wrote the original gospels and the original epistles, there was no such things as punctuation marks, certainly not parentheses. So these are modern inventions, but nevertheless, when parentheses are added by the editors and translators of our Bibles, they do so because they recognize that the writer is giving us a parenthetical thought or a thought that is an aside to the main flow of thought. And so Mark does that here. Our New Testament does that quite frequently. Actually, about 335 times we find a parenthetical phrase in our New Testament. And so because we are focused on making the main point of the text to be the main point of the sermon... Parenthetical phrases are those types of phrases that we give attention to, but rarely, if ever, would we say, let's make the entire message a parenthetical phrase. However, this parenthetical phrase is one of probably 
probably the most unique parenthetical phrase in the New Testament because I know of no other parenthetical, how many times can I say that? Parenthetical phrases in the New Testament that carry the same degree of importance and significance as does this one. This is arguably by far the most significant and the most important parenthetical phrase found in all the New Testament, in all the Bible indeed. This is a phrase that is only added by Mark. The other gospel writers, when they include this incident, they do not include this phrase, this aside note. But Mark does. And so let's now turn our attention to this. In the phrase that's given here, Jesus declares all foods clean. Let's just begin by revisiting the context and the flow of what Mark is saying to us. So in this section, as Jesus is confronted once again by the Pharisees and the scribes who are taking exception to the fact that his disciples and he are not ritually or ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. They've come up from Jerusalem to confront Jesus about this because remember, they have conspired with the Herodians to put Jesus to death. So they're actively looking for reasons to condemn Jesus in such a way as to have him put to death. And so they come up and they confront Jesus about this. Jesus responds to them that you are hypocrites. And Isaiah was right when he said about you that you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me because you take the the teachings, the commandments of men, and you turn them into doctrine. And so then Jesus goes from there to declare how quite plainly and quite uh, completely Jesus says how that they have taken the commandments of God and not just lowered them to a lower level or even put them on the same level of Scripture, but they have completely annulled them. They have completely negated the commandments of God, the written commandments of God. They have taken them and made them to themselves to be worthless because the Scriptures, the commandments of God cannot share a co-authority with any other authority. So Jesus says you have made them as nothing in order to cling to your traditions, your man-made teachings, these traditions that surround the commandments of God, which are the traditions of men that they have taught. And so after saying that, then Jesus is, is then uh, takes the people aside and he says uh, to them that, that uh, taking them aside, he says, hear me. And he gives them this teaching, hear me. He says, nothing that goes in defiles you because what you eat just simply comes in your mouth and then goes out the other end. So Jesus, in doing this, he's teaching them, as we said last Sunday, that he's not saying that that you you can just take anything you want into your mind and into your brain and, and sort of ideas, take them uncritically without discernment, and they will do no harm to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying in the context here, food doesn't defile a person. Because spiritual defilement comes from within. It comes from the heart. So that's what Jesus says. It is what comes out. It's what's in the heart. It's what defiles a person, not what you put in your mouth. That's not what defiles you. Spiritual contagion or spiritual infection, spiritual disease doesn't come from failing to ceremonially wash your hands. Instead, spiritual disease or or to use another word, sin comes from the heart. And so then in saying this, Jesus then goes on to describe how the heart of all people contains within it the seeds of all these sins that Jesus talks about. He gives this list of sins. And so he says the hearts of all people contain the the seeds, the foundations for all these sins. And so the defilement, the true defilement of a person is something that comes from within. So then in this passage, Mark then, of course, adds this parenthetical phrase that we've been talking about. 
As Jesus says, it's nothing that you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And then he gives the side phrase, which the side phrase is to say, and so doing, he declared all foods clean in verse 19. And so that's where we want to land our focus this morning on that phrase, because that one phrase there is he declares all foods clean. It's hard to overestimate the impact that that statement needs to have or, or must have had for Mark's original readers, even the first and second century church. Because as we recognize what Mark just noted, as, as Peter, of course, is the source of Mark's words, of Mark's gospel, Mark is writing down Peter's experiences. And Peter is remembering, of course, that incident that will take place decades later with the sheet that comes down and how, how he's told in the vision that these, these animals that you've been calling unclean all this time, they're not unclean. And all that was a prefix, so to speak, for him to go to the Gentile uh, centurion, Cornelius. And so as Peter is recalling this and, and Mark is writing this down, the two of them together probably say, and this was the point, this was the point at which Jesus declared that all foods are clean. Now, all foods being declared clean, put to an end a practice of some 4,000 years that God's people had been recognizing these Jewish dietary laws. So this is a monumental thing that was just given. And so as such, even though it's a parenthetical phrase, we'll turn to this this morning and let's focus our thoughts on this because there's, there's two things that I really want to come across this morning. Two things that if we spend our time looking at this this morning, two things that I hope that everybody leaves this morning thinking. And if you leave thinking these two things, then we've succeeded this morning. So those two things are, are this. First of all, I want you to leave recognizing the power and the authority of Christ. In fact, that, that's the point of every message. Every message, when you come together in this context here, you should leave having heard and having thought of the power and the majesty and the authority of Christ. So that's one thing we want to make sure comes across is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ this morning. But in addition to that, there is another goal that we have this morning, and that goal is this. We all live today in a society that, quite frankly, before our eyes, is changing values at such a rapid pace. The societal values around us are changing at such a rapid pace that literally, I think most everyone in the room, or maybe just a one or two exceptions, most everybody in the room can say, within my lifetime, the societal values have been completely reversed. Within my lifetime. And in fact, within my recent lifetime. We have gone from a society that, for the most part, affirmed most biblical values. That's not to say that our society was a few decades ago a Christian society. We've never been a Christian society in the sense that the majority of the people in our, in our society were Christians, were true born-again Christians. We've never been that society. Nevertheless, we were in most of our lifetimes, just somewhat recently, a society that for the most part affirmed and valued most biblical values. And so within the last 10 years, maybe, we've gone to from that to a society that now is the complete reverse of that, disdains biblical values, and in fact, rejects them nearly outright. So we are in a 
point in history, I don't think I'm overestimating to say that we are in a point in history that most likely if we were to transport ourselves to the future 30, 40, 50 years, and we were to see what people said and wrote about this period in history, I think that most people would be, most historians would be looking at this period in society to say that was a period of great upheaval. That was a period of great change. A lot of changes were taking place during that decade, 15-year sort of period right there. And as these changes are taking place, we who are true, born-again followers of Jesus Christ, we are finding ourselves in a place in which the Scriptures are being attacked and perverted in ways that are increasingly radical and increasingly poignant. And we're being faced with attacks upon the Scriptures and upon which we base our lives that some of them are new and some of them are not so new, but they are all increasing in frequency and increasing in force. And so one of these things that I often hear, I've heard this for years, this is, this is not new, I've heard this for many years, you have too. The, it's the criticism that kind of goes something like this. And once you hear this, you'll say, oh, I've heard that before, and I've heard it in this context, and I've heard it in that context, and I've heard it in this context. It goes like this. When we look at the things that the society around us at large are now making approval of, and we say, well, the Bible condemns that, the Scriptures condemn that, then oftentimes the response is, oh, you mean the, the, the same Scriptures that you say condemn the practice of homosexuality, those same Scriptures say that you can't eat shellfish, right? Am I right about that? The same Scriptures that say you can't eat bacon also say that, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 20 and verse 8, that a man shall not dress as a woman and a woman shall not dress as a man. So you're saying the same Scriptures that say a man should not dress as a woman, also say you can't eat shellfish. So there you go. So what you're doing is actually picking and choosing those commandments in Scripture, those regulations in Scripture that you like, that fit your agenda, that fit your perspective, while the rest of the world around us will say, well, we'll just throw the whole thing out. Because the same book tells us that, that you can't eat uh, shellfish, that you can't eat pork, that you, that you have to follow these dietary rules. And then that book is going to go on to say in places like Leviticus that uh, a man shall not lie with another man as with a woman, or a woman shall not lie with another woman as with a man. And so you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here. So if you've heard that argument, I'm sure that most everyone here has. It's not a new one. It's been around a long time. But it's one that is gaining increasing traction, and quite frankly, is not the easiest argument for many Christians to counter with. Now, I don't for one minute think that, that we're going out during the week and we're going on to CNN and debating atheists or we're debating atheists on the street corners. That's not what I'm, what I'm getting at here. But the goal, and here's the goal, the, the first goal is this, to leave thinking highly of Jesus and His authority and His power. Number two, to strengthen, to shore up your confidence in the Scriptures and to strengthen your resolve, your confidence that the Scriptures are reliable and trustworthy and that what the Scriptures teach us about sinful behavior and non-sinful behavior can be trusted by understanding something about how the regulations and the laws of God come to us. Those are the two goals this morning to leave thinking highly of Jesus Christ 
and to leave having your confidence and your assurance in the trustworthiness of the Scriptures to be strengthened, to be bolstered. These inerrant, infallible, sufficient Scriptures that we affirm are without error of any kind and are sufficient for all things having to do with faith and salvation. These same Scriptures we will leave here this morning saying, yes, God has given us the perfect Scriptures. We need nothing more. We can trust what they say to us. So in order to do this, we need to work through some things that have to do with the laws that God has given to His people through His Word. So that's how we're going to kind of come at this. And this is the perfect opportunity as Mark has this little parenthetical phrase, thus He declared all foods clean. That's the perfect opportunity for us to say, let's take that. Because in this instance, Jesus has just set aside a whole list of Old Testament laws and regulations. So this is the perfect opportunity for us to say, let's make sure that we understand God's words to us and that we understand why and how it is that we can stand firm on what the scriptures say to us and why. So as we begin, let me just say right up front that a portion of what we say this morning, really there's no way around this, a portion of what we say this morning is going to sound a bit technical and less than exciting. And I apologize for that. You know, if we were if we were compiling, I don't know, some exciting sound bites from Disciples Fellowship, then we probably wouldn't have any this morning because a good portion of the work that we need to do this morning is just it's going to feel kind of technical. But there's really no other way because here's what we have to do. We have to start from a particular starting place. And the starting place is this. We need to understand the nature of God's laws or to say it another way, we need to understand something called, I'll call the, the categories of God's laws. God has given us a book that contains many writings, stories, gospel accounts, letters to churches. It also includes much sections that gives to us regulations. And those regulations come to us in categories. And if we fail to understand that God's word comes to us, that God's regulations have different categories and those different categories mean for us that we are to understand them differently. They relate to us differently. Some of them have no impact upon us at all. Others still have great impact. And to understand why there are differences and what those differences are and how we can be assured of that, that's the place that we have to start. Otherwise, we won't get anywhere to a satisfactory answer to, well, why can the Bible say not to eat shellfish? Or why can the Bible say not to eat pork, but also say that a man is not to lie with another man as he does with a woman? And why is one a law that we don't follow and the other is? That's the only way to come at this answer. Okay? So God's Word contains for us a number of rules and laws and regulations, right? As we mentioned last week, The Scriptures have gained a reputation, somewhat falsely, I believe, undeserved, I believe, a reputation of being full a book that's full of rules. And as we said last week, I don't think that that's really the case in reality. I think if if we were to look at the collection of regulations that the Old Testament offers for us and compare those to the endless list of regulations by which you have to live your life today, you'd find that it's really not that many at all. By comparison. But nonetheless, the Bible is a book that contains a number of regulations and rules for us. 
those rules fall into different categories. Now you might say, well, okay, well, where does Scripture teach that? Where does Scripture say to us that there's different categories, that the different rules that God gives in His Word that they fall into? What, what Scripture, what, what book of the Bible, what chapter says that? And the answer would be none. There's nowhere in the Scriptures that say to us that when God gives the command, thou shalt not murder, that that fits into one category, and then God gives this other command over here that uh, you shall uh, not eat shellfish, that that falls into a completely different category. Where's the Bible verse that says that? And there is none. Instead, the Scriptures come to us with an understanding, with an assumption that any reasonable reader of the Scriptures can clearly and plainly see that the rules that God has set forth in the Scriptures plainly and clearly fall into not only different categories, but categories that are easily defined, easily recognized, and are nearly impossible to confuse once you see how God has done this. So when God gives certain regulations such as, well, let's just start with the Ten Commandments. If we start with the Ten Commandments, we would recognize that those would fall into a category of God's commands that I think are are best termed as God's moral law. God's moral law governs the heart. It governs the souls of men and women. It says to us things such as you shall not commit adultery, that you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not murder, you shall not uh, covet what is your neighbor's, you shall have no other gods before me, You shall have no graven images. You shall not take the Lord your God, the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And those 10 commandments given to us in Exodus 20 and again in Deuteronomy 5, those 10 commandments, the Decalogue, the 10 words, they serve for us as a summary, so to speak, of God's moral law. And God's moral law is binding on all people who have ever lived for all time and for eternity. God's moral law is binding on every person who has ever been born. And furthermore, it's binding upon every person for eternity. There will never come a time in which God's moral law is then set aside. Because God's moral law is the summary of what governs the life of all people. Now, if we were to think back to a message that probably goes back about a year and a half. I think this came to us when we were in Daniel. But if we were to think back, we're not, we won't go through this completely now, but let's just quickly revisit what God's moral law is or what it represents. So when we think about the moral law of God, take for example, thou shalt not steal. Don't steal. We recognize a couple of things. First of all, we recognize that all those laws, those rules, so to speak, they come to us, most of them come in, an, in the negative form, meaning don't do this, don't steal, don't lie, uh, don't covet, don't uh, commit adultery. Uh, a couple of them are in the positive, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, but then also that has the negative side, you shall not do any ordinary work on this day. Okay? So even though they come to us mostly in the negative, we recognize that they also have a positive side to them. So the command that says, uh, the sixth commandment, don't murder, the positive of don't murder would be honor life. Don't dishonor life. Don't murder. 
Instead, honor and protect and uphold life. So all the commandments have that. They have this positive and negative. You shall not commit adultery. The positive of that would be you shall be faithful to those with whom you are in covenant relationship. So what is this moral law of God? It's helpful to just think of it this way. Is this moral law some sort of universal code for what's right and what's wrong? What's eternally right and what's eternally wrong? Something that exists outside of God. It's just a universal code. And the universal code says it's right to honor life. It's wrong to wrongfully take life. And being this universal code, God, who is all wise and all knowing, is good enough to tell us about this universal code that is outside of himself and above himself. Is that what God's moral law is? Or rather, is God's moral law something that he establishes? Is it wrong to lie because God says it's wrong to lie? Which is it? Is lying wrong and God is just the one who tells us it's wrong? Or is lying wrong because God says it's wrong? And the answer is neither. The moral law is not some code that exists outside of God, some code that the universe lives by. Because if the moral law was some code that the universe lives by, and God is just the one who tells us of this, then when we violate that moral law, and find ourselves as transgressors of the moral law, then what could God do to to give us forgiveness, to purchase forgiveness, when the law is not His to begin with? So God could not purchase forgiveness for us if this moral law was something outside of Himself. Furthermore, if the law was something that God created, if God says, hmm, when I create this world, let me make a world in which adultery is wrong. That doesn't work either, because if the moral law is something that God created, then when we find ourselves as transgressors of that moral law, and God says, forgiveness for your transgression requires the life of my son, then what kind of God is that who kills his son when he didn't have to? Because if the moral law was something he created, when we transgress that law, forgiveness of that transgression should not require the death of his son. So the moral law is neither beneath God as something he makes, nor is it something above him as something that he lives by himself. Instead, the moral law is a description of God's character. And so that's where we start. We start by understanding that the moral law of God, that law that governs life, that's summarized for us in these Ten Commandments, that law is a description of who God is, And by connection, because we're made in His image, it's a description of how our lives should be. 